All right, so I have four main headings that I would like to develop for you this morning about how to read the Bible. Uh, Susanna woke up this morning and she, she asked me where I was going. I put on a polo shirt. She said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to talk to the men in the church about how to read the Bible. And she laughed. <laughs> so we came up with our, our three points of how to read the Bible. First, you open the front cover and then you look at the first word. And, All right, my first main heading is, there is no command to do a daily quiet time. Why might that be? Hopefully it's fairly obvious that um, books are a recent phenomenon. Uh, Gutenberg invented the printing press in the 15th century. So that's pretty recent that books have even been possible to print. And even with the printing press, books have been very expensive, and the Bible Uh, in particular, was not translated into English until the 16th century. Uh, And so books then being very expensive to print up until even the 20th century. So books, cheap books, are a very recent phenomenon. Of course, now we can have the Bible on our phone, and everybody's got that. So Bibles are everywhere now, which is is amazing. It's an amazing resource that we should be very grateful to the Lord for. But it's not a requirement to to read this. I mean, how could God make uh, a requirement that you have to read the Bible every day if the Bible is not even available to be read and um, and, and other issues with dealing with literacy and so forth? It's not a bad idea to read the Bible. In fact, it's a good practice to have a system where you're reading through the Bible in a year or you have some sort of system where you're reading through the Bible in a number of years or or something like that. More exposure to the Bible is a good thing. It does not make you a better Christian if you're reading the Bible. It does not make you a better Christian automatically. In fact, if you're reading the Bible and your life is not in line with it, it's greater condemnation upon you. That's my first concept there. The second thing I would like to point out to you are James Jordan's 12 rules. And you can find his lectures on the Theopolis Institute's uh, blog post. Not blog, it's a, his podcast. I always get blog and podcast mixed up. <laughs> the Theopolis podcast, where I think it's um, episode two, they have James Jordan, he, he talks and gives his 12 rules for how to read the Bible. That's what my video series is about. And I'll just walk through each of those rules for you right now so you can hear what they are. The first one, is hear it. We need to hear the Bible read out loud. So it's a good practice for us and our families to be reading the scriptures to one another, to have a time where we're reading the Bible out loud as a family. It's also a good practice to be in a place where you can hear the Bible read out loud. Obviously, the church is the place where that is done on a regular basis. The Bible ought to be read in the church And and we ought to be listening. And and it's appropriate for us to be standing at attention when the Bible is read. This is God's word. And we even acknowledge it. You know, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Things like this. Um, The reason for that is because when we're we're reading it, and by the way, silent reading is also a very new phenomenon. That's, That's something that was not done until very recently. When people would read... Historically, they would read out loud. Uh, so, for example, in, in Acts chapter 8, I'll refer to this chapter again a little bit later, when you have the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading a section in the book of Isaiah. He's reading it out loud. 
And when Philip comes up to him, he's hearing the man read it out loud. And he says, do you understand what you're reading? Um, so reading out loud is, it was, was the common way to read things. Um, and if you're reading it silently, if you're reading it in your mind, it's very easy for your eyes to skip over things. It's also easy to shut your eyes off. How do you do that? You just shut your eyes and you, you're not reading anymore. You don't have to, you don't have to look at things. You're, you have a lot of control over your, over your eyes. Your ears, however, you do not have control over. They're always open. You can't shut your ears. You can let your mind wander, but when you're standing at attention in the church, it's much more difficult to turn away and not notice things. Your ears also will catch things that your eyes will miss. I'm sure you've had the experience when the Bible is being read out loud, a passage that you've heard or that you've read a hundred times. I never noticed that phrase before. That makes the Bible come alive to you. And so that's that's an important rule. Hear it. The second rule is what I just showed you in the video. There are no rules, which is a great rule to have when you're talking about not having rules. Uh, Make rule about not having rules. There are lots of uh, different approaches to reading the Bible. And when I was in seminary, we were taught the grammatico-historical method of interpretation and redemptive historical method of interpretation. These rules, they can be helpful. I said in the video that they're rationalistic and so forth. That might, I might need to soften that language a little bit. Um, but there is a, a tendency to rationalism, to think that my mind is smart enough to figure out what's happening in the text. And there, there are useful things that we can do. There are, there are principles for us to um, figure out the meaning of texts. You know, you analyze the grammar. You figure out what's going on in the verse. You look at it in, in its broader historical setting. But sometimes, and actually maybe more often than sometimes, the rules that we invent for ourselves can um, distort or help us to miss the point rather than get the point, get the, get the point, because we often will miss the forest for the trees and things like that. So let the Bible teach you how to read. Um, you can use guides. The, the Lord has given guides to his church, pastors and teachers and so forth that I mentioned in the video. Rule number three, read the Bible in the church and never apart from it. <clears throat> I don't mean that literally, that you have to be in the church, in the physical building of the church. But the church, God's people, this gives us the, the place where the scriptures are appropriately read. If we are using the Bible outside of the context of the church, let's say we take the Bible and we look at it strictly in an academic sense, what do we get? What has happened when scholars in academic universities have taken the scriptures and tried to interpret them? Theological liberalism. Talk about missing the point of scripture completely... um, It completely misses the point of Scripture. On the other side, particularly in America, if the Bible is read outside of the context of the church and outside of academia, you get things like cults developing. You know, well, the doctrine of the Trinity, we don't really know about that. The Bible doesn't mention the Trinity, so maybe that's not even a true thing. But of course, God, God has given us the Spirit in the church And the church has worked through these things to help us understand where the guidelines are. The Apostle Paul, who said they also had the scripture uh, taught to them just as we did, that they heard the message 
it was of no value to them because they heard it did not combine with faith. And that's the, isn't that the concept you're talking yeah. about in the church? Yeah, the analogy of faith, yeah. I had a guy that I was trying to bring to Christ a few years ago, and he said, I've read all the so-called prophets and stuff, it doesn't look like it points to Jesus to me. Well, that's why. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Rule number three, <clears throat> read it in the church and never apart from it. Rule number four, read the Bible as a whole, as a single unit. Uh, what Pastor Booth is saying about Steve Schlissel tearing that middle page out between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that's what this is about. We should see the Bible not as, oh, there's the Old Covenant stuff that doesn't necessarily apply to us. The, old, the New Testament, well, what the New Testament repeats from the Old Testament, that applies to us. But the rest of it doesn't really. That's a, a misunderstanding of the Bible. The Bible is one book. We should read it that way. There is continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Rule number five, read cumulatively. Previous events in the Bible are opened up and inform the later events in the Scriptures. So we should... Uh, when we're reading, uh, for example, uh, the book of Exodus, we should remember that Abram had an event where he went down into Egypt, and those things were foreshadowed in Genesis chapter 12. He experienced everything that Israel will later on experience. So uh, those, those things are, are opened up and uh, pointed to. <clears throat> That's a great question. Um, I actually don't recommend that. Uh, I don't think it's, there's some, anything wrong with reading the Bible chronologically. Um, I tried it once. I, I listened to the Bible on, and read chronologically, and it puts Job kind of right after Genesis 3, <laughs> which has seemed a little bit odd to me. But um, I, I think that it's better to read the Bible as it's canonically set up, because in, in the canonical order that the Bible is, there are things that point here and there. Uh, it, it's, it points to, to itself, and it fills, fills itself out. Does that help? Pastor Booth? I'm currently reading it chronologically. I've not done that before. Uh, and in fact, I'm about to finish with that. And I, just, I would just say it's, there's a number of reading plans. I'm sure you mentioned some of that, but um, it's like a lot of things, looking at things from different angles and getting it. It's, like, it's helpful to remember that when you're reading 1 Kings and reading 1 Kings and Chronicles, which refer to each other, um, and you'll read in the daily reading, you read the story here, and you go over and read the same story uh, in 2 Chronicles. It helps bring a few details together in the same story. I'm, I'm just saying. I would recommend it because I think it's helpful. I would do so. That's what I always do. But doing it once is useful in my view. That's fair. <laughs> yes, sir. Also, in putting together, hear it out loud, and read it as a whole. Uh, you actually recommended uh, through Facebook the, the lectures by Alistair Robbins as he goes through, and he does such a fantastic job. Of doing those two things. Joel and I are just richly blessed. We do that every morning. We, we guard that time. So if guys haven't heard it yet, read it on YouTube, uh, you can 
day by day and does that. Carve out some time. That's a fantastic series. Yeah, that's a great point. Thank you, Rick. Uh, for those of you who didn't hear that, Alistair Roberts has a series on YouTube where he reads through the scriptures. He has daily scripture readings and then a meditation, a reading from the Old Testament and then a reading from the New Testament, and he talks about each one. They can be a bit lengthy. Some of them are up to 45 minutes long, so you need a lot of time carved out to be able to do that. I'm listening to the same thing, and sometimes I kind of skip through his explanations because it's like, man, I don't have enough time. To... <laughs> uh, but some, when, he, when he hits a passage that I'm particularly perplexed by, I like to listen to what he has to say, and I'm always helped by it. Number six. <clears throat> Pardon me. Rule number six. Read holistically. And that is, take everything into account. Uh, and, and I think what, what he's talking about here is, I said read cumulatively, so the old, the older sections or the previous sections help us to understand later sections, but it goes the other way too. So the New Testament opens up what's happening in the Old Testament. So one of the things that we saw in um, Sunday school a couple of weeks ago when Lee was teaching, he talked about Isaiah referring to, well, is it the, the young, the young maid who will give birth to a, a son or is it a virgin? That word could be translated either way. Well, the New Testament tells us that that word should be translated. We should understand that as the virgin. So the New Testament opens up that interpretation for us. The New Testament interprets the Old Testament for us. So read it holistically. Number seven, read for particulars. When you read the scriptures, you'll notice that there are details in the Bible And the details are never there by accident. The Spirit does not waste his breath. For example, when Paul in the book of Romans says, I didn't, I I would not have known what coveting was unless God had told me in the law. He doesn't mention coveting as just some random example. He mentions coveting specifically because that has import for what his point is in that passage. What is that? Something we'd need to talk about, right? Number eight, read historically. And this is about chronology. We need to think chronologically about the scriptures. The Bible uh, has places in it where we can actually time out, figure out when things took place. And there have been good men who have done this. I think uh, particularly um, Bishop Usher, has put together the, the Annals of the World. He's got this big, thick book where he goes through the history of the world based on the numbers that are given to us in the scriptures. And there are others who have done Bible chronology to show that, and it's helpful to think about, you know, who are the characters in the Bible that are contemporaries that we don't necessarily associate with each other. For example, Samson and Samuel were contemporaries. Think about that for a second. Samson and Samuel. You think of those guys in two completely different contexts, but they were doing their ministry at the same time. That's astounding. Uh, Rule number nine, read cosmically. The Bible teaches us about the world. This is something Pastor Booth is talking about in uh, in his lecture about the sufficiency of Scripture. The Bible is not a textbook. But it does teach us how to look at the world. It teaches us how to, how to see stars. 
When we think of stars, we think scientifically about balls of fire, (laughs) gaseous balls of fire. And when the Bible talks about stars, we should be thinking about something else, world powers, angels, and things like that. When when we look at trees, the Bible teaches teaches us how to view trees. When we look at stones, the Bible teaches us how to view stones symbolically, what they mean, um, and, and, and so forth, how we should think about the world that we live in. Rule number 10, read humanly. The Bible is all about humanity. And so when you're, when you're reading the Scriptures, of course, Pastor Booth has said that the Bible is all about Jesus. Luke 24 Jesus opens up the scriptures to say that it's all about him. It's all about the man, Jesus Christ. When you look at the temple being constructed in the book of 1 Kings, the temple is constructed almost like it's a human body. It has ribs. Why would, it, why would God have that temple with ribs, with this almost like a human body lying there that we can enter inside? Well, because the Bible is about humanity. It's about the man, Jesus Christ, ultimately. Number 11, read musically. And I don't mean that we should sing it necessarily, although it's a good practice to put the Bible to song. And we have songs in the Bible that we should be singing, the Psalms in particular. But the Bible has a rhythm to it. There are themes that are opened up early on in the Bible that are repeated. And the Bible riffs on these different themes. It's almost like there's a chorus that you can hear uh, you hear the, the rhythm, you hear the themes of Scripture. We need to think musically in that sense. The motifs that are, that are throughout the Scriptures. And rule number 12, read structurally. There are all kinds of different structures in the Bible. One of the big ones is a chiasm. So you have A, B, C, and then it backs itself out. C, B, A. So you have Stories that start and end in the same place and the thing that's in the center is, uh, is important. You also have alphabetical constructions in the Bible. Some of the, some of the Psalms, Psalm 19, for example, is ordered according to the, the Hebrew alphabet. There are different sections that start, let's say this first section of this Psalm starts all with the letter Aleph. And then it goes through the Hebrew Bible. Each, each, each line begins with Aleph in that first section and, and it goes through the whole alphabet that way. And there are other sections in the Bible that do that, that same kind of thing. You can also think in terms of office. You know, um, the, the, the Gospels are ordered according to the offices of Christ. The Gospel of, um, the Gospel of Matthew is presenting Jesus in his office as priest. The Gospel of uh, Mark is presenting Jesus in his office as king. The Gospel of Luke presenting Jesus as prophet, and John presents him as the man, the true man. Questions about those 12 rules. Um, I recommend listening to James Jordan in his, his lecture series. Of course, I'll have that video series eventually that will, will um, be finished, and I would crave your feedback on those. How can I make those better? How can I change my language so that it's not so offensive here and there? I know James Jordan can be a little bit provocative. don't know if you've noticed that about him, but he does have that tendency. All right, number three, hermeneutics. 
Does anybody, can somebody define hermeneutics for me? The science of interpretation. I think you both said the, the same thing at the same time. <laughs> yeah, very good. Uh, it's the science of interpretation. We're, we're looking at the Bible. How do we interpret it? There, is, um, there, are, there are different methods for interpreting the Bible. There's, as I mentioned before, the grammatical historical method of interpretation. This one is particularly fond. The, the, Reformed, peop, the Reformed churches are particularly fond of that method of interpretation. Um, I think that that gives us at least part of the picture of what's happening in the Scripture. I think we want to be very careful with hermeneutics because there are many modern concepts, modern ideas of hermeneutics that we, we don't necessarily want to agree with. Pastor Booth. Yeah. And so I think that's, and I'm sure you're going to cover this, so I'll go too far, but the cautionary note that um, when we're dealing with the living Word of God, uh, that it's not um, something we carry into the laboratory and dissect and arrange and describe in the way you might a flower uh, or something. It has to be put in. Very helpful. Thank you. Methods would be a good way to describe it. Yes. It's really a methodology of how we go about interpreting. So I guess maybe mitigates the problem you're talking about. Yeah. Definitely methods of interpreting the scriptures. And I was going to say there, there are some places where um, we want to be very careful with uh, hermeneutics because in, in in a lot of scholarship the text of the Bible is seen as a husk. And Peter Lightheart develops this in his book, Deep Exegesis. When I say that, a husk, think of, think of a nut. <laughs> what do you want? you want? When you eat the nut, what do you want? You want the nice fleshy piece that you can eat. And the outside part is a husk, and you just kind of rip that off and throw that away. That's not important. A lot of times when we're thinking about the Bible, we want to get to the application. That the text is just this stuff that's there that's not really that important, and we can kind of do away with it and get to the kernel. The thing that's important is how does this apply to my life? And that's a mistake. There's a lot more to, this, to Scripture than just uh, the application part of it. Application has become king in the modern church. We... I must know what to do with this. And that's a big part of our, uh, the, the concept of having a daily quiet time. Like, I'm, I need to have a thought for the day, something that's going to inspire me to do some really good things today. That's not necessarily what our Bible reading should be all the time. It, it can be that, but that's not the, uh, the, the sole, that should not be the sole goal of your scripture reading. 
But often it's uh, turned into the only thing that matters is your application, what to do. We, we do have this tendency, as Pastor Booth is saying, to turn the Bible, to the reading of the scriptures into a science. And I think we want to be very careful about rationalism there. Our minds uh, cannot rationally understand God. We can't understand God. God can reveal himself to us, but we can't name him and try to control him. And so um, trying to logically figure out that God, uh, there is a danger in that, as, we're, as though we're trying to become God's master. We tend also to read the Bible very individualistically. You know, this is just about me. I've got me. It's me and my Bible and Jesus, and that's all I need. And it's a lot more than that. Another thing um, is fear. Fear plays a big part in modern hermeneutics. It's a big, a big factor. Many pastors are afraid that they're going to get the text wrong. And so instead of dealing or trying to deal with the text, they stay away from it. They'll skip over sections of the text. We don't want to get into that because I might get it wrong. When there are things that we can say, even about texts of Scripture, that are extremely difficult. Pastor Booth mentioned uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 last night where Elisha calls the, he curses the, the young, the, it's, well, let, let's look at that passage. Second uh, Kings chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. I'll try to bring up my Bible application on my phone here, no, my, my iPad. <laughs> it is. I've got the digital version. And the battery is still good, so let's look at it. Verse 23 through 25. He, that is Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of Yahweh. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Now this is a difficult text. Pastor Booth said, I don't know what to make of that. Uh, now, and that's, that's a good thing to say sometimes. I don't know. Uh, but when, when we stop there, 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 there are things that we can say about this passage. And we shouldn't be afraid to at least try to talk about this. It's good for us to, let's, let's think about what these things might mean. So what can we say about this passage? <laughs> that's the point, yeah. If, if you're bald, God's got your back. That's, that's what it's talking about. Um, <laughs> respect your elders. And, and that's a, that is a theme that's here. Respect your elders. I think that's definitely there. I don't think that's the only thing, but that's definitely something that we should say about this passage. Something else we could say. Remember rule number five. Read cumulatively. Bethel. <clears throat> He's on his way to Bethel. <clears throat> Pardon me. I didn't even have a cigar yesterday. I'm all froggy. Okay. He's on his way to Bethel. What's, what is Bethel famous for? You remember? <laughs> What did Jeroboam do in Bethel? 
Who's Jeroboam? Oh, now we have to, we've got to talk about the Bible history. Let's, oh, Abel, Abel's going to help us out. Who's Jeroboam, Abel? Very good. Wow. Very good, Abel. Yes. So that's an interesting... There's a bunch of stuff that's going on there, right? Rehoboam, Solomon's son, becomes king, and his king, his, his rule is harsh. And that causes Jeroboam and the whole northern kingdom to rebel. In fact, Jeroboam becomes a kind of Moses figure, leading the northern kingdom in this exodus. And what did Aaron do in the exodus? He gave him a golden calf to worship. And Jeroboam says, you know what? I think Aaron had it, had it right. We're going to set up golden calves to worship. But we're not just going to have one. Oh, no, we'll have two. One in the south, right by the border, just in case those people from Judah want to come up and worship appropriately the way Aaron taught us to at the golden calf. Or way up north in Dan, we'll put another one up there. And what did Jeroboam do after that? He appointed priests in this town of Bethel. So Bethel is a center for the religion of the northern kingdom. It's the center for this golden calf worship. Could that be significant for this story? Absolutely. Who did Jeroboam appoint as priests for his golden calves? Anybody. He just... There was no specific Levites that he chose. He he just appointed different people that he thought would be good for the the role. So that's key to understanding what's going on here. What also has just happened in the book of 2 Kings, just before this. Elijah has ascended. Elijah has gone up. Who was Elijah to Elisha? He was his head. Could that help us understand what's happening here? Maybe. (laughs) I don't want to say definitively, but it seems like there's a picture that's beginning to form here. There's some symbolism that's at play here. Jeroboam's priests were anybody he decided to choose. There's also a translation issue. My translation says, on his way up there were some small boys. You know what? The Hebrew does not say anything about small boys. The Hebrew uses two words there. One word is na'ar, which means young man. And the other word is katan, which means young. Does that mean boys, small boys, children? What does the Bible say about youth? What did, what did Paul say to Timothy? Don't let them despise your youth. How old was Timothy? He could have been about 40 years old. So a youth in the Bible does not mean a child, necessarily. It could I don't want to say that that's absolutely out of the picture, but it's more likely, given what we understand about what was happening in Bethel, 
that these people who came out to jeer Elisha knew who he was. And it is also possible, at least possible, that they were associated with the false worship in Bethel. It may be that they were even priests for this golden calf worship. They knew the story of Elijah. They hated the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And their attack is to come out at Elisha. Okay, now it mentions going up. Go up, you bald head. I think, I could be wrong, I think this is a reference to what happened with Elijah. Your, your master has gone up? Why don't you go up too? He didn't really go up. It's a taunt. Now that your leader has gone up, why don't your head, your cover, your head covering, you're bald-headed. Why don't you go up too? Who would hate him enough to make that kind of a taunt? It would be the people who are associated, these young men associated with the false worship there. Then there are bears, she-bears in particular, that come out. What? What does that have to do with anything? What's the rule of interpreting Scripture? Scripture itself. Does the Bible talk about she-bears? Does the Bible mention bears anywhere before this? Yes, it does, thankfully. I looked it up this morning. I was, I was thinking, hmm, I don't know, if my, am I going to have something here? But it does mention it in First, First Samuel and Second Samuel. And this is fascinating. In First Samuel, it's chapter 17, the story of David and Goliath. You know what David says? David says, God delivered me from the paw of the bear. Later on in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 17, Hushai is counseling Absalom. And he says, David's mighty men, they're like enraged mother bears. So these young men do not have Yahweh to protect them from the paw of the bear. And the enraged mother bears are in the place of God's mighty men to come and devour them. Well, that's, we could say that, right? Am I, am I, is that a bit speculative? Yeah, that's a bit speculative. Am I wrong? Maybe. But it at least gives us something that we can talk about. And then there's the number 42. What do you make of the number 42? Well, if you've read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you know it is the answer to life and the universe and everything. And it took deep thought 7.5 million years to come to that answer. No. <laughs> I'm not sure what to do with 42. I think it may be... Uh, what's that? <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> the, well... It may be something that I'm terrible with numerology. There may be something with seven times six that's going on there. I don't. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Good. I remembered my math facts. <laughs> so there's something going on there. The David and Goliath story. 
but also the the futility of this false worship in Bethel is going on there, seven times six, and maybe something that's, you know, this is man and his strength. The number of man is six, and the number of creation is seven. I, I don't know how to put that together. But uh, we shouldn't be afraid to, to talk about those things together because they at least get us talking about Scripture. And as long as we're, we're thinking within the confines of the church where, where God has given us um, the guidelines in his church, we... We, we should be free to, to <laughs> I want to say, speculate um, and, and converse about those things. We shouldn't do it out of fear. Uh, the typical reaction to this would be like, well, I don't know what to do with that, so let's skip over it. Tim. Um, Where do you just use speculate? I like to use terms of a sanctified imagination. Ooh. Or like holy wondering. You know, we're not just a... I really speculate. Like, if we're meditating on Scripture and depending on the Holy Spirit and wondering about it, I think that's a really healthy thing. That's what meditation is. When we're doing that sanctified imagination. Yeah. Oh, that's a great point. Thank you. That makes me feel better. <laughs> Pastor Booth. Again, last night I referred to this in terms of law. God often tells us what room to operate in. So, the sanctified part of the speculation, the sanctified, the sanctified part, I don't have to that, it's not just informed by scripture, it's informed by the, the systematic theology that we have. You know, God has given us the church. The church has thought through a lot of theology. And if my speculation is going outside of the bounds of, say, um, a, the, I don't know, what's the Chalcedonian formulation, for example, then I know that I'm, I'm out of bounds. But if I'm within where the church has said, here's where orthodoxy is, then it's, it's fair for us to talk about those things. And we can come to, that's what iron sharpens iron is, right? We're, we're sharpening iron. We're, we're teaching one another. We're helping each other come to better conclusions. We're not going to answer all the questions. I don't think I've answered for you what this passage is about. I've given you some clues. <laughs> that's the best I can do right now. The Bible also, in many cases, invites us to this kind of imaginative yeah. thing about uh, theological Very good. Or like we're afraid to talk about it. Like I'm afraid to be wrong. We've got to get over that fear. That is one of the issues in reform circles, I think, through an enlightenment influence. Uh, that, for example, the confession can become, even though we say it's not equal to Scripture, we start treating it. That, well, that's not the way the expresses 
precisely. And so Jeff Neal has used the term sola lingua. We have to use the specific language that others have used to express it or else we're in dangerous territory. Yeah. And I think that is dangerous. Great point. Moving on. There is a more, like I said, we're looking at modern concepts of interpretation and thinking of interpreting out of fear. There's a more ancient idea of interpretation. And this is developed in Peter Lightheart's book, Deep Exegesis, again, where he talks about the fourfold sense, which was also called the quadriga. Now, what do you make about the quadriga? What do you make of the quadriga? The quadriga is, there are four perspectives from which you should interpret the scripture. The first one is the literal sense. The second one is the allegorical sense. The third one is the tropological sense. And the fourth one is analogical. And I'll open up what those mean. The Westminster Confession of Faith refers to the quadriga in a, it's like a parenthetical statement. It, It doesn't, it doesn't mention it specifically. It's in the very first chapter, um, in the ninth paragraph. This is what it says. I, I like this chapter, by the way. It says, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. Now, that little phrase, which is not manifold but one, is a reference to the quadriga. It's saying, hey, look, that fourfold state stuff, not happening with us. We're, we're not into that. Uh, it, there's only one sense of scripture. The Westminster Confession of Faith wants to uh, get that across to us. Um, so what should we do? Should I just say, well, the, the quadriga, we should, we should abandon it? Well, let's think about it a little bit more. <clears throat> the fourfold state, the first... The first one, the literal interpretation is what happened. The second one, the allegorical interpretation. Now, allegory, we have to be very careful with because allegory is, uh, at, at least the ancient form of allegory, was informed by Hellenistic thinking. Greek philosophy really is at play in a lot of allegory, uh, you know, platonic themes and so forth. But there, there are ways to, to use we shouldn't actually, I don't like the word allegory because it has these negative connotations to it. What we should think of is typology, the ways that the Bible plays with itself, the ways that the Bible mutually dances with itself. Um, what we should believe is really what the allegorical sense was about. Third is tropological. This is application. What are we supposed to do? And the fourth is analogical. What are we supposed to hope for? Now, as I said before, tropological has become like the one thing that we still do. Everything else we've jettisoned. But if you think about a good sermon, what does a good sermon do? It does all of those things. Pastor Booth will open up for us in a passage of Scripture. He'll go, okay, here's the history. This is what was happening at the time. This is what, this, this is what was happening in the historical setting. And then he'll go through and talk to us about all right, now let's think about what we're supposed to believe about who God is. What is this passage teaching us about the Lord? That's, that's allegory. <laughs> then he'll say, all right, now what, what are we supposed to do with that? 
tropological. He's applying it. And then he'll say, and, and what's our hope for the future in this? That's all. That's, that's the quadriga. We still do it. Uh, and, and I don't think that we should say that it's, in one sense, I agree with the Westminster Confession that, yeah, we, there's, it's not like you're, the Bible has all these different interpretations, but we can view things from different perspectives and come at a greater sense of what the Bible means. Any thoughts or questions about that? I think the Westminster motivation there is they're, they're responding to abuses yeah. in the medieval Catholic world. And they're, uh, so I can't, I, I want to be careful not to interpret the Westminster outside of what they're actually trying to do in that document. So I think, I don't know if that reference is actually going to be a dismissal of the quadriga. I think there's a, I think there's a, a reading of that that may still allow I agree. <laughs> so the quadriga, well, I think what Spencer would say would be opposed to is to say that each of those four give us adequately or contradictory things. Uh, so the allegorical interpretation teaches this doctrine. Mm-hmm. But a historical approach would give us a different doctrine. And so we're not free to, to take one of those and run with it. In other words, to use all those Yeah, that's that's the way I would frame that too. I don't I don't think so. I don't I don't remember, but I don't think he he mentions the West this this chapter of the Westminster Confession. This time time's about up. I was going to do more. Um, I was going to talk about having a guide. It's good for us to have a guide, and I mentioned that in the in the video. You know, the eunuch had a guide, and the God still. The God. God still gives us guides now. I was going to reference, um, he deals with us also where we are. And uh, a great example of that is Acts chapter 10. If you read Acts chapter 10, it's really amazing. You've got Cornelius, who is the centurion. And God, when he's explaining things to, to, to Cornelius, he tells him exactly what's going to happen. He breaks it down to him. He's like, okay, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, your alms have been received. And I'm going to bring somebody to you who's going to open things up for you. And then he goes to Peter. He's like, okay, Peter, here's a sheet and some animals. Go eat them. And Peter's like, what? (laughs) So it's like God has given Cornelius very specific instructions, very specific things, A, B, C, D. And with Peter, he's like, just drops a bunch of puzzle pieces on the ground and says, you figure it out, Peter. (laughs) Uh, But these people are in different places. Peter is an apostle. He should. He's, it says there in the, in the passage that he's perplexed by, by the vision that he's seen. Cornelius isn't perplexed. He's scared. But he knows what he's supposed to do. Peter is left with trying to figure things out and put these puzzle pieces together and eventually comes to understand things uh, because he's an apostle and he has the responsibility to do that. So if you're in a place where you need a guide, that's totally fine. God has given you guides and he's, he's given us helps to interpret the scriptures. And I'm totally out of time. (laughs) So...
Uh, let's, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll break. Lord, thank you for the Bible. Uh, we pray that you would help us to read the Bible well. We know that we haven't said everything here, and there may be even things I've said here that are controversial. I pray that this would add to our conversation about it, and that you would help us to be good students of the scriptures as your children. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.